Amen. Thank you, Becca and choir. That's a perfect song for today's message, Jesus, the great I am. That's what we're going to be talking about from John chapter 8 today. And our crew that we prayed off to go to Dominica to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to show what love is, as Mark just reminded us, uh, they are in Philadelphia right now, uh, not Dominica, because their flight got canceled from Puerto Rico to Dominica, so they are headed back to Nashville. They're going to be back here about 3.30 this afternoon, so we're going to try it again. We're going to pray them off another time, and they're going to head back to Dominica. Rob Caldwell is still there in Dominica now, so pray for Rob. Pray for the efforts that are underway there as they seek to restore Dominica by showing what love is, by building a church, by building homes, and restoring what was lost in the Hurricane Maria. I sure am glad to have Morgan and Jude back after a crazy week of Century Kid. Brad McKelvey texted me his, his Apple Watch showed him that he, wa he walked 41 0.5 miles during the week of Centric Kid. Morgan uh, attested that was true. A lot of walking across uh, Lee University's spread out campus. Um, I sure am glad to have them back, especially Morgan. We don't function too well at my house without her, so no offense, Jude, but really glad to have her back. Uh, I don't understand how single parents begin to, to run a household and raise children and work a job. And I know we have many single parents in our congregation. So on this Father's Day, I want to say to you single parents that we, we see you, we appreciate you, we love you, and as your church family, we want to stand in the gap uh, that was left by, by someone else as we are family for you. So we're going to continue to walk through the Gospel of John all throughout this entire year. We've been walking through this amazing story of Jesus Christ and learning more about who Jesus is and how he reveals himself to us. So we're going to be in chapter 8, starting in verse 48 today. We're going to see another great escalation in the conflict that Jesus is causing between him and the authorities, the religious authorities that ruled in Jerusalem during his day. So I invite you to stand with me out of honor of God's word, if you're able to, as I read our text for today, chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Jews answered Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. It's appropriate on Father's Day that, again, we have a paternity claim in this text here. Is their father Abraham or is their father someone else? As we look at this first part of the text for today, we see that the argument between Jesus and these Pharisees, these Jewish authorities, continues to ramp up. And have, have you ever gotten in an argument with someone where they've been proven to be in the wrong? They've, they've been shown to be incorrect, and yet they refuse to back down? They refuse to apologize? They refuse to acknowledge that they're in the wrong? So what happens? You can observe my children if you want to see them argue sometime. This happens often. When they are shown to be in the wrong, they don't necessarily back down, but usually resort to some kind of insult, name-calling. Adults never do that, right? <laughs> They'll say, well, you are a meanie face, <laughs> as if that improves the argument for them. This is pretty much what happens in verse 48 where Jesus and the Pharisees are arguing. We saw last week how the Pharisees think that they're okay, spiritually, ethnically, that they're good to go because they claim to be direct descendants of Father Abraham himself. Their paternity claim makes them purebred Jews of the highest caliber. And Jesus assures them that Abraham, the man of faith, the progenitor of the Judeo-Christian and Islamic traditions, that Abraham is definitely not their father. Jesus tells them in the text we saw last week that Satan is their father because they bear a family resemblance to the father of lies and murder. They look more like the devil than Abraham. So when their theological argument fails, Jesus' opponents now resort to name-calling. Well, you're a Samaritan. No, no, no. You're a demon-possessed Samaritan, so take that. It was a racial slur. To call someone a Samaritan was a racial slur. The Samaritans were seen by the Jews as half-breeds, as illegitimate children of God, the product of lapsed Jews who had intermarried with the pagan tribes north of Judea. Again, we see that the kinds of people who resort to racial slurs to denounce someone are really the spiritual offspring of Satan more so than of Jesus or Abraham. So Jesus answers them in the next verse, verse 49, by saying, look, I'm not demon-possessed. The only reason that I do the things I do and say the things I say is out of obedience to my heavenly Father. And because you dishonor me, you dishonor him, the God that you claim to know and be from. And, and Jesus would not be honoring his Father if he sought his own glory, if he put himself on a pedestal. So in verse 50, he explains that any glory that he obtains is because the Father is giving it to him. The Father is glorifying the Son. And nowhere else will that glory be better displayed than when Jesus Christ is lifted up on a cross of wood to be the perfect spotless sacrifice that if we would look to him on the cross, we would be saved from our sins. 
Again, Jesus is not trying to, to make them into fools or to win an argument here. His point is always the same point that he has from the beginning. He came to what? Seek and save the lost. He's sharing the gospel with them out of love and compassion is why he's saying these things. He's inviting these religious people to quit trying so hard to follow the rules and be good and just accept the free grace that God offers through the Messiah. That's why he says in verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, if anyone believes it, cleaves to it, lives it out, obeys it, abides in it, that person will never see death. After all, Jesus has the words of eternal life. His word is life-giving. It provides victory over sin and over the consequence of sin, which is death. But these guys don't get it, of course. They only think in physical terms, in terms of death. And they know that Abraham, the great father of, of Israel, that he physically died, that he heard the word of God, he obeyed it, and yet he died physically. The prophets, too, heard from God, and they, they mediated God's word to God's people, and they died as well. So they're only thinking in these kind of terms, and they're hearing Jesus say that his word is something new, that his word does something that the word that Abraham heard didn't do. And again, they denounce Jesus as demon-possessed, so they, they try to press Jesus in verse 53 into laying all his cards on the table. Just who do you make yourself out to be anyway? And by asking that question, they reveal that they've missed the point completely that Jesus has been making and that John has been making throughout eight chapters. That Jesus doesn't make himself out to be anybody. It's God the Father who is making Jesus out to be someone, and that someone is the Messiah. It's God the Father who is showing the world himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't exalt himself to any kind of glory or any kind of status. Everything that he is doing and saying is, again, out of obedience to the Father, the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God the Father. It's all part of God's plan to redeem this fallen world back unto himself. And Jesus is simply playing his part. He's doing as he's told, being faithful to fulfill God's plan. So then Jesus goes on to point out that these Pharisees don't even know the God that they claim to serve. You know, throughout the, the Gospel of, of John, we're gonna see even more in the, the future that knowledge and obedience go hand in hand. For John, knowledge and obedience are inseparable. You cannot know God if you don't abide in his word. And vice versa, neither can you obey that which you do not know. Knowledge and obedience are tied. And Jesus knows God intimately. They're part of one another. They are pre-existent together before all time and he knows and obeys the will of God perfectly. But the argument heats up in verse 56 when Jesus brings Father Abraham back into the de debate. These Jewish authorities had, have been appealing to Abraham throughout the entire chapter. Look back at verse 33 in your Bibles. We're offspring of Abraham, they say. We've never been enslaved to anyone. 
Then in verse 39, Abraham is our father, they say. And then we just read in verse 52 that Abraham, the, the father of their faith, even he died. Surely Jesus isn't claiming to be greater than Abraham, is he? And Jesus tells them here in this verse, look, truth be told, Abraham, he was a big fan of mine. He, was, he really enjoyed seeing my day. This guy that you're obsessed with, Abraham, he rejoiced that he would see the gospel, that he would see the Messiah. He saw it and was glad. What's Jesus saying here exactly? The Pharisees take it very literally. They, they assume that Jesus is saying that he hung out with Abraham sometime around 2,000 years prior to this. They scoff and they say, you're not even 50 yet. How could you and Abraham have hung out together? Give me a break. And, and here's where it turns from mocking Jesus and deriding him to outright trying to murder him. When, when Jesus says what he says in verse 58, he, he turns this group into a, a full-blown lynch mob. They abandon all procedural prosecution against Jesus and just pick up stones to kill him then and there. You know, Jesus could have claimed, before Abraham existed, I was. I was there before Abraham was. But that's not what he says. He takes it a big step further. He says in verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. He must die for saying this, according to the Jewish law. The, the penalty for this kind of blasphemy was to be stoned. Why were his words so offensive? What is it about saying I am that must deserve death? What line did he cross that sends these Pharisees into such a, a murderous frenzy? I am. Ego eimi in Greek. It, it wasn't the first time that Jesus has said these words. But previously, every time he said these words, ego eimi, people just kind of waved it off like, he didn't mean that. He, he didn't really just say what we thought we heard him say there. He wasn't really making that claim, was he? It's not what it sounds like, surely. Remember back in, in chapter 6, after he fed the 5,000 and he disappeared, Jesus' disciples get in the boat and they, they row halfway across the Sea of Galilee and a storm comes up and they're, they're freaking out and they're trying to row as hard as they can and Jesus comes walking to them on the water about three or four miles out from land. And what does he say? The first thing he says to them, Ego eimi, I am. Do not be afraid. Jesus makes, it's that translated in, in our Bibles as it is I, but the words in Greek are ego eimi, I am. Later when the crowds come across the sea and they find Jesus in Capernaum, and they, they want more free bread and more magic tricks from Jesus, he teaches them, look, I am, ego eimi, the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He's made several of these I am statements throughout chapters seven and eight too. I am from God. For a little while, I am with you. I am the light of the world. Each time he's saying, ego, a me. But 
Jesus gets a little more pointed here in chapter 8. In verse 24, what we looked at a couple weeks ago, he says, unless you believe that I am he, I am. When you lift up the Son of Man, he says in verse 28, then you will know that I am he. You know, he may have been dropping hints before, but, but here in verse 58, there can be no mistaking him. Before Abraham was, ego, me. And what's the big deal about saying I am? What's the big deal about these words, ego, me? Well, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the sacred Hebrew scriptures, it's called the Septuagint, these words, ego, me, are incredibly powerful. In fact, the, the Hebrew word that they serve to translate is so weighty, so sacred, so holy, that Jewish people to this day dare not utter it. When they come to this sacred word in Scripture, instead of saying the word, I am, they say, Adonai, instead, the Lord. It's the sacred name of God himself, Yahweh. Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. It's the sacred tetragrammaton for Jewish people. And when they, again, when they come to it in Scripture, they, they dare not say it. When Moses stumbled upon the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, and God reveals himself to Moses and says, I want you to go to Egypt and free my people, Moses says, who are you? What, what do I tell them your name is? Who is sending me? And God tells him, I am who I am. Yahweh. Ego me is how the Septuagint translates the sacred name of God. It's a really big deal. This is why Jesus is using a name here that can never be given to another human being. He's saying that he is the God above all other gods, the one who spoke creation into being, the one who holds the universe together and in which all things live and move and have their being. This is why he could calm the storm in chapter 6, because he has authority over creation which he brought into existence. This is why he could claim to be the bread of life, because his words alone are the words of eternal life. He is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, as we just heard Becca and the choir sing. Many people throughout history have, have died over battles over this idea of the Trinity. It's a big deal. The word Trinity never appears in the Bible, that's true, but it's clear from texts like these that the God that we have come to know and love and worship is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. That somehow these three persons are in a deep unity together, a mysterious Trinity, the Godhead, Right? Three in one. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. The Jewish authorities of, of this time in Jesus' day knew that the Messiah would come. They, they even taught that Father Abraham, we know from first century rabbinical literature, that they taught that the Abraham saw the Messianic age. He knew what was coming with the Messiah. But they never could have conceived that God himself would break into their world and put on flesh and show up in human form. The perfect 
spotless lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. God, to these guys, was some distant, terrifying figure who was so holy that to come into his presence was to die, was surely to die. But in the person of Jesus, God, the transcendent God of the universe, drew close to us. He condescended to us. He didn't come to condemn us, but to rescue us, to show us what love is. Are you hungry? I am the bread of life. Are you thirsty? I am living water. Do you need a guide, a protector? I am the good shepherd, as we're going to see in two weeks. Do you need a way? I am the way. Do you need hope? I am the resurrection and the life. This is the good news of the Messiah. We call this good news the gospel. Abraham indeed saw it and was glad. When did Abraham see the gospel? Well, first, he, he saw it in God's rescue plan that God revealed to him in Genesis 12. This is not the covenant of Abraham. This is the call of Abram. Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has a plan. Yes, sin had wrecked the, the formerly very good creation and plunged it all into death and darkness and decay, but God has a plan to use Abraham's family to be a blessing, to be a conduit of God's grace and blessing into a fallen world. That's good news. Abraham saw the gospel later when he met Melchizedek, the mysterious priest of God Most High. Look at Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings of uh, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. What does that sound like? Communion. He was priest of God's most of God Most High, and he blessed Abram and said, "Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth." And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And the text says here that he was also the king of Salem, shalom, which is peace and flourishing and prosperity. He was the king of both righteousness and the king of peace. He was a prophet, priest, and king, the priest of God Most High, the priest of his own order, superior to the Le Levitical priesthood, the one from whom Jesus would come. And he blessed Abram. That's good news. Abraham saw the gospel in Genesis chapter 15 when God makes a promise to him. Starting in, in verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, his household servant, your very own son shall be your heir. 
And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and God counted that to him as righteousness. Abraham saw the gospel in a lot of places in the way that God came to the wilderness and cared for Hagar and Ishmael. He saw the gospel when the Lord appeared to him in Genesis chapter 18 in the form of three wandering strangers. He saw the gospel when two angels showed up in Sodom to rescue his family. But per perhaps there's no greater example of how Abraham saw the gospel than when he took his own son, his beloved Isaac, up onto Mount Moriah, which we know later is where the temple was built in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the Lord. When he brought his son up on that mountain, he saw the gospel. Listen to this from Genesis chapter 22, verse six. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Isaac's walking uphill with wood on his shoulders, much like Jesus would. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both went of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went, so they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. God had commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And Abraham obeyed. Verse 11 and verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham acting on faith that the Lord would provide the sacrificial lamb in place of his son, saw the gospel in this moment. So what? What does this mean for us? What's the application for us today? Well, the New Testament, which is our part in God's story of everything, tells us that we, the church, Christians, are actually deeply connected to Father Abraham as well. We need to understand this. We are every bit as Abrahamic as these Pharisees claim to be in John 8. Look at what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia in chapter 3 of Galatians, starting in verse 16. Now the promises, what promises? The promises of the gospel were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, the Hebrew is singular, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is Abraham's offspring, through which all families of the earth will be blessed. Then skip to verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith, not by the law. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
For in Christ Jesus, you all are sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Being Abraham's offspring means two very important things to us. First, it means that the great I am has drawn close to us and rescued us and made us part of his own family. Jonathan Edwards, the, the Puritan preacher who played a, a big part in the, the first great awakening, he would often ask people something like, how do you really know that you are a Christian? How do you know in your heart that you are a Christian? And his, his answer was always some version of this idea that when the holiness of God doesn't terrify you anymore, when the holiness of God doesn't repel you or scare you to death, but you long to be close to the holy God, true holiness overwhelmingly makes us feel inadequate, powerless, and small apart from the covering of Christ. People are drawn to the holy, but they're also repelled by it because they're terrified of it without a covering. When we know the one who was, is, and ever shall be has condescended to us out of love, then it opens our hearts to receive adoption as precious and beloved sons and daughters. And the cross of Christ, God's perfect holiness, his perfect justice and power and might, and his love and grace meet perfectly. The second thing that being Abrahamic means for us is that we have a job to do. We are still on the hook for Genesis 12. We have a part to play in God's plan to bless all people in the world, to be a conduit of God's grace. This is why Jesus gives us the great commission in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is Abrahamic baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This isn't just about evangelism, one of our purposes. It is. That's not just what it's about. It's not just about discipleship either, teaching them to obey. It's not just about church planning or missions or ministry. It's about God's great plan to rescue this whole fallen world back to himself. God didn't save us so we could live a happy life and one day go to heaven. He saved us to use us. He saved us so we could join him in his mission to redeem this fallen world. Once we understand our place in God's story, in God's plan, in God's precious beloved family, will we now step up and fulfill our role as Abraham's offspring, the conduit of God's grace to spread the gospel into all the earth. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you revealed the gospel to Father Abraham thousands of years ago, that you showed him what your plan is to redeem this fallen world that sin has wrecked 
that you are making all things new through Jesus Christ, who came to earth and dwelt among us, who put on flesh and condescended to us, who moved into our neighborhood in order to give us words of life and show us the gospel that we who believe in him, who trust in his ability to take our sins and remove them as far as east is from the west, who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that we now can have eternal life. God, I pray that that gospel would transform us from the inside out, that we would live more fully into our identity as beloved sons and daughters in your holy family. God, I pray that you would help us to now understand our role in what you're doing in the world, that we are indeed Abraham's offspring and therefore have a part to play in bringing this fallen world back into yourself. God, we thank you for the gospel. We know we can never pay you back, but I pray that you would help us to live lives that are worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ, the great I am. It's in his name we pray, amen. We're gonna have a time of invitation now. We're gonna sing, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, the great I am. If you've never put your whole trust in Jesus, if you've been terrified of the holy God because you have not received the free covering of grace that God offers us in Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk with you about what that looks like right now in this moment. I'm gonna ask Jan Bennett if she'll come forward. I'm gonna ask Brad if, if he'll come forward as well. If you wanna pray with one of our prayer team, uh, they'll be here to pray with you. If you just need prayer in your life because you're going through a tough season, maybe you need healing, maybe you need rest restored uh, relationship, whatever it is, I invite you to come pray with, with Brad or Jan or myself here now. Maybe you wanna join Woodmont. Maybe you wanna follow Tate's example last week and, and follow Jesus' example in being baptized in believer's baptism by immersion. If you wanna do that, I'll be here to talk with you about what that means too. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, let's stand and sing from our hearts to so sweet to trust in Jesus. Let's sing.